0: We are continuing in our Lenten series, a series we're calling Remembering Messiah. We're walking through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and, and as we do, uh, we want to let you know that Scripture is something that's really central to who we are, how we believe God has orchestrated life. And so if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you. We've got Bibles that are at the, the front door and also at the back corner over there that we'd love to get a copy into your hand. It's a great book. You should read it. So before we dive into the word though today, I want to, I want to start off with a pop quiz because who doesn't love a surprise pop quiz, right? (laughs) Woo! All right. Let's, uh, let's see this. Can anyone tell me who this guy is? Judge Gorsuch. And that look of panic. Don't worry, I'm not going political. <laughs> during the first service, I was like, what? you see people going, what's he going to talk about? Oh my goodness. Yes, this is this is Neil Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch is President Trump's appointee for the empty seat uh, on the United States Supreme Court. And so this last week, we've been listening to uh, the, the nomination process, the confirmation process, and they, they've been airing it live on, on air during the day. And so I've been trying to listen to as much of it as I can over lunch breaks and that sort of stuff. But I got to tell you, it's been... And a little bit difficult to sit through it, to listen to it. I mean, this process is supposed to be non partisan and non political. But if you've listened to any of it, it is, it's is—it's very political. And I think both sides have brought sort of their A-game to this conversation. Uh, and this thing that was supposed to, you know, be basically a, a rubber stamp in some ways. I mean, it's a political process. Don't, don't write me emails about that. Uh, but at any rate, the point is it has become something far more than it should have been. Uh, and really, all of that started way before this week, way before these confirmation hearings. Really, this started all the way back during the election. In fact... In many ways, the last two years of campaigning, the last two years of, of these, uh, what do you call it, conventions and commercials and all of the political stuff, really all of that was about this. was about this moment in so many ways. So many of the people that I talked to during the election process said that really more than they were voting for any particular candidate, they were trying to vote for the right to have their party put the candidate in place in the Supreme Court who would represent their values, their ideas, their beliefs their systems. And so really it was a lot more about this than about the election of the president in, in some ways it's a big deal, right? I mean, the seat on the bench has been vacant for the past year and it's a seat that will be the deciding vote on many tie breaking issues. It will swing it one way or the other. And this judicial appointment is for life. This person is going to be in this role for decades, the legacy of which can and will shape the law of the land for decades. It's a big deal for generations. And so, into an extremely, maybe the most politically polarized environment we've known as a nation since the Civil War, the Republicans nominated Judge Gorsuch. And they have put him through this confirmation hearing, and he took on a barrage of questions about how he would vote on certain issues. And time and time again, he gave some variation of an answer that said, I can't tell you how I'd vote on that issue, because if I tell you how I would vote, I can't then look a defendant in the face who comes before my bench and in any way pretend to be, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, unbiased. I couldn't look that defendant in the eye and somehow pretend that I'm, That I'm being fair or impartial. How can I be a fair judge if I announce my rulings in advance? And it makes sense. I get it. And yet, that's hard. It's hard because we don't know. And I think most of the roots of the questions were an idea of, can we trust you? Will you represent us, our needs, our priorities? And for the most part, Judge Gorsuch's hands were tied. He couldn't really answer beyond just pointing to his own record as a judge. And so, yes, the confirmation hearings were a little rough, a little hard To listen to. But that's how our system works. I mean, that is democracy working. Whether or not it feels great or not, that's how democracy works. Uh, Winston Churchill famously said, Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. (laughs) And I think that that really is. I mean, that that captures it so beautifully. The truth is, we're going to get through this process, and whomever is nominated will do their best, and they will serve faithfully for years until they die. (laughs) At which point, another imperfect Human will take that role and they will serve faithfully until they die. That's how the system works. And it's a good system, even when it's not at its best, it's good. But it's also made up of humans who are flawed and imperfect and mortal and die and need to be replaced. It's not perfect, but it's the best we've got. Okay, we'll leave the politics aside now. Uh, Give me a little grace on this analogy, but I think there's some parallels that we can draw between the system that we've put in place for governing our nation and the system that God put in place for governing and ruling the people of Israel in the Old Testament. All right. So God in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus had given Israel through Moses, the law, this code of conduct of how they were to interact with one another, how they were to interact with the nations around them, and most importantly, how they were to interact with God. And As part of that system, God had appointed and established a priestly system. And these priests would act as, as a bridge between humanity and God. They would be a conduit between humanity and God. They would interact with God on behalf of Israel and offer sacrifices and gifts to God to atone for the sins of his people. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this history. But God gave them this elaborate system by which they would build this tabernacle, this this house of God, this tent. And it was down to the the most minute detail about what the thread was supposed to be colored and how it was to be stitched. Every detail was outlined for them. This elaborate system of how priests were to be selected and ordained. And then God selected, appointed Moses' brother Aaron to be the very first high priest and his sons to be priests that would serve along with him, And God gave them the system by which they would sacrifice animals in order to atone for the sins of Israel. And that was complicated. I mean, it went down to all the details of like which animals must be sacrificed, how exactly they were to be cut up, what should happen to the blood. And there was so much blood. If you read through these stories. Of exactly what was supposed to be done with all the internal organs and the kidneys and all of that. There's so much, you know, blood and fat and all these things that are just, frankly, rather gory. There was just so much death. I mean, truth. if you read through Leviticus 16, if you read through these different passages, it was a violent, brutal system. That was put in place into an even more violent and brutal ancient Near Eastern world. There were sacrifices that had to happen every single day, multiple times a day. So much death. And then one day a year, the day of atonement, there was a special sacrifice that was done. And it was different than all of the other sacrifices that were done daily. Once a year... The high priest and only the high priest could enter into the special room of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And I know many of you know this, but for those who don't, there was a special room in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. It was hidden from the rest of the space by a veil, by a curtain. And no one could enter the space because if they did, they were entering into the presence of God and they would be killed by just the holiness, the power of God's presence. But once a year, one man, the high priest, could enter into this space to offer sacrifices for God, the special day of atonement sacrifices. But before he did, he had to do a special ritual, a special rite of purification over himself, kind of a sacrifice before the sacrifice. He would have to sacrifice his own prize bull from his own herd. So this, is, this is a costly personal sacrifice that he was making to purify himself before he could go in in front of God. One man, one day per year on behalf of all of Israel. That was the system. That brutal, violent, gory system. And it stayed the system for centuries. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, fast forward to the book of Hebrews. Fast forward to the, the first century. And the author of Hebrews is writing to this group of Christians, most of whom had been Jewish most of whom had come from the systems where they still understood the role of the priest. They understood the role of sacrifices. They, They understood all of this, the violence of this and the beauty of this. And this is how we can be atoned. And this is how we can have a relationship with God. And one of the reasons that many of these Christians were walking away from Christianity and going back to kind of their Jewish roots is they saw Christianity as largely abandoning The system of priests that had been so central, so important to their religion, so important to how they could understand how this works with God. And to that, the author of Hebrews writes this. This is the end of chapter 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who's entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. And there's a whole lot that's packed into this little passage. Okay? So then, since we have a high priest... Christ did not come to abandon the systems of priesthood. In fact, he came to fulfill it. He came to do what no priest before him could do. He became the high priest, and not just the high priest, but the great high priest. What the old system was able to do in part and imperfectly, Jesus now does completely and perfectly. Amen. And he's not the son of Aaron. He's the son of God, it says. And he wasn't appointed by a man or by birthright, but by God himself. And he doesn't go into the Holy of Holies one day per year. He sits at the very throne of God, at the right hand of the Father, constantly and perpetually and perfectly advocating for us, arguing our case before the Father. And he doesn't have to do purification rituals because he is without sin. Sin. He's saying because of who Jesus is, because of his standing, he was able to do what no priest before him had ever done. He can be the perfect bridge between humanity and God. And then the author of Hebrews does an interesting thing. Remember how I talked about Judge Gorsuch? Yep, I totally remember that. Remember how when they asked him the questions of how would you how would you rule in this? Give us a preview of your ruling. And he said, I can't. I simply cannot do that. Because I would be impartial. I could not look a, I could not look a defendant in the eye. Well, here the, the, the author of Hebrews gives us the exact opposite response. He gives us that glimpse, that preview. We can know in advance exactly how this high priest will, will act. Verse 15, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So then, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. He's saying, we can know in advance how he's going to judge. We know. Because we know his character, we know his desires, we know his biases and his agenda. His agenda is restoration. His agenda is to make unity with us. That is his agenda. And more than that, because we know that, because we know how he sees us, because we know his heart, we can come boldly before his throne. That stands in such contrast to the idea that we saw in the confirmation hearings. There, a judge said he couldn't look a defendant in the eye if he had prejudged. And that makes sense. But here, the author of Hebrews is saying, because, exactly because we know that he's prejudged, we can go and we can look the God of the universe, the high priest in the face, because we know in advance how he's going to rule. It says, there, we will receive his mercy. And we will find grace to help us when we need it most. We know that we can boldly approach the throne of God and receive mercy and grace and help. That is the pre Judgment. It's also such a contrast to the Old Testament system, right? In the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. One man, one day a year. It's so exclusive. Now he's saying not only can that one man enter, but he's there all the time. Not one day a year, but every day, all the time, perpetually advocating on our behalf. And not just him. We are all invited. The veil is torn. The curtain is torn and all of us are invited to come into the presence of God. And now he's saying we can do that not timidly, not on our knees groveling, but we can come boldly. Not after elaborate purification rituals to try to make ourselves holy or through the blood of a cow, but just as we are. And then the Author Hughes explains exactly how that happens in the very next verse, the very next chapter, verse 1 of chapter 5. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He's saying the high priest must be a man. And the point of that isn't about gender. It's that the high priest must be a human. All right? Only a human can represent humanity before God, So the first point is the high priest must be human. You'll remember perhaps from verse, I'm sorry, from chapter two of Hebrews, which we looked at a few weeks ago, it said this. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Boy, there's so much in there as well, right? Because God's children, he calls us his children, are human. The son became human. For only as a human could he die. There again, we see the system of death. Satan, he says, is the why. Satan, the devil, had been given real power, real dominion in this world. Back all the way at the beginning of the book in Genesis 3, God had given dominion to man, to humankind. He had said, you are to rule over this. You are to uh, steward all of creation. But mankind traded that right, traded that dominion to Satan when we fell. In very real ways, Satan had power in this world, the power of death. And Satan demanded as his fee, as his pay, his due, he demanded death. He was the prince of this world and his economy was death. And so there was so much death. Israel was not a slave to a sacrifice system. They were a slave to the fear of death, this economy of the devil so Jesus, into that, into this ancient Near Eastern world that is so violent and, and so brutal, God takes his divine nature, which, is, which he has had since the beginning of eternity, which doesn't have a beginning. He's had since eternity. But they cannot die. And he unites that with a human body, which can. So that he might be able to enter into death. I, I don't know how to make that any more strongly said death was the required payment. And so he made himself killable so that he could offer his life as a ransom for us. So back to this idea of of the high priest has to be human. Jesus became human and therefore could become the high priest, a high priest who could offer himself as a sacrifice for us. The creator became the created. the the priest becomes the sacrificial lamb. The judge becomes the defendant. It's an upside down economy. And as a human priest, Christ could identify with us as humans. Again, continuing in chapter five, verse one, every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. And he's able to deal gently with the, ignorant and wayward people, because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. He's saying just like every human priest before him, part of Jesus's role, part of his ability as a human would be to identify with the weaknesses that every human has. He was tempted in every way that we are. He was truly human. He didn't simply appear human when he took on flesh He took on all of our weaknesses as well. There's a great quote that I found this week by David Mathis. He says, his humanity isn't a costume. The eternal divine son didn't simply make a cameo in the created world. He forever joined our humanity to his divinity. And for all eternity, will be fully God and fully man. That just jumped out at me this week. It's an interesting concept, right? He forever joined our humanity to his divinity and will for all eternity be fully God and fully man. Have you thought about that? Is Jesus in your mind still human? Our language about Jesus sometimes suggests we don't at Christmas. We celebrate that Jesus took on flesh as if it were a costume. This veil of flesh. I think sometimes when I talk about the incarnation, I say, yes, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And what I mean is Jesus is fully God and used to be a man. Right? Can anybody identify with that? That's how we often think and even talk about Jesus. But that's not what we get from the New Testament. N.T. Wright, in the book that we've been recommending throughout the series, you should all get it. Hebrews for Everyone says this. He was and remains one of us. A truly human being who still remembers what it was like to be weak, to get sick, to be tempted over and over again from every angle. Don't make the mistake that some Christians have made of imagining that Jesus, having become human in the incarnation, stopped being human after his death. One of the central beliefs of the early Christians, not least in this letter and those of Paul, is that Jesus remains fully and gloriously human. And that it is as a human being that he rules the world. It's fundamental. And yet I have to say that as I was reading this this week, Chris does this all the time, and now I'm doing it. Like it just jumped out at me like, wow, that is a big deal. The high priest is still Human. And I think the danger, the subtlety of us using that other language that he was and is not yet, is that somehow in that we make him more distant. At Christmas, we celebrate Christ's incarnation, that the God of the universe became a baby. And that is a beautiful truth. But I would argue that perhaps it's even more beautiful that the King of the universe stayed a human that he took on all of our weaknesses and all of our temptations. And so I think we celebrate the incarnation at Christmas, but we should celebrate it even more at Lent, even more in the resurrection, that that human became a human again in a new and glorious way that we will one day experience. The incarnation is even truer in that sense at Easter. I completely lost my place. (laughs) the author of Hebrews doesn't say, so then because we had a high priest that who understood us, he says, no, we in the real time have a high priest who understands our weaknesses, who can identify with us. He gets us, he's for us and we can boldly bring all that we are, all of ourselves to God. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to make ourselves holy. In fact, we shouldn't any attempt we make to make ourselves holy is subtly suggesting that perhaps what Jesus did isn't enough. That one I'll get emails on. Wrestle through that. Wrestle through that. What is what is the role of, of monitoring our behavior? And to what extent are we to obediently bring all that we are and allow Christ to make us pure? I was talking to Brandon this week, who's always full of wisdom. And he he said this to me, and I thought it was great, so I included it. God is no longer asking us to make ourselves pure before we come into his presence. He's inviting us to come into his presence to be made pure. Such a subtle difference and yet it matters. It's profound. It means that we don't have to get ourselves all together before we come into the presence of God. In fact, to do that is to take away what God wants to do in us. Our role is to be obedient, to come with all of ourselves into his presence and lay all of it before his throne, boldly. That means bringing the shame, the questions, the failures, the doubts, the dumb stuff that we keep doing even though we know it's harmful to us and the people around us, but we just can't seem to break it. It's bringing that. But also, it's bringing all the attempts that we make throughout our life to make ourselves holy, all the ways that we build religious systems and behavior management systems and bringing those before God. Confessing all of it, all that we are before God and saying it is yours. Make me pure. I confess all of this to you. The author of Hebrews is calling us to bring all of us boldly to the throne of God so that we might experience the God of grace. Who will? We already know the outcome. We know how he's going to judge. Who will give us mercy and forgiveness and grace and who will help us when we need it most. So the question I think that we're faced with all of us in this room, are faced with is, will you come? Whether it's for the very first time, and there are people in this room for whom that might be true, who have never brought all of themselves to God. Will you come for the thousandth, the ten thousandth time before God and truly bring all that you are? God wants all of us. And I think there's a double meaning there. Yes, God's heart is for the world, the whole world. God's love the whole world. I said it last week. But God wants each of us to bring all of us. And that message is for all. I think those for whom God has been distant, I think the author of Hebrews says he's not. You can go right now into the presence of God. That's an amazing invitation that is unprecedented before this in history. Not since creation could man interact directly with God, and he's made a way for us to do that. But I think many of us in this room have probably been in faith for a very long time. And for those of us who have grown up in and around the church, I think the greater temptation is that we build up these systems, these, these ways of measuring who's in and who's out. We create these new modern legalisms to figure out exactly who's on the right side of which issues. And I think in some ways we're resurrecting the barriers that Christ tore down. Let's not. Let's bring those, in fact, before God as well and say, these are yours. We confess all that they are. Because there is very little to be gained by figuring who's in and who's out. And so even to that, Jesus says, come as you are. I've completed it. It is finished. I have done what needs doing. Let me do it in you now. <clears throat> Excuse me. So another pop quiz. I know you love those. Can anyone tell me who this is? In the first service, I got Betsy Ross, but it's not. Any Annie... Margaret Thatcher? There we go. <laughs> this is a woman. This is a woman named uh, Charlotte Elliot. Charlotte Elliot was born on March 18, 1789, as the daughter of Charles, a silk merchant, and his wife Elling. She had two brothers, and both of them were very important members of the clergy in the Church of England. So she grew up in and around the church. She knew all the systems. She was kind of British aristocracy of the church. Okay? According to her Wikipedia page, this is her story. I'm just going to read it. At an early age, Charlotte began to be aware of her sinful nature and of her need to resist sin's enticements. Charlotte felt unworthy of God's grace while growing up and was incapable of facing a righteous and perfect God. She was continuously told by different pastors at the many churches that she visited to pray more, to study the Bible more, and perform more noble deeds. Now, let me be clear. That's good advice. (laughs) Do those things. And yet, that was the complete picture she got. That is what the pastors told her. As a young woman, she was gifted as a portrait artist, and the writer of Humorous Verse. Then in her early 30s, she suffered a serious illness that left her weak and depressed. She was an invalid and suffered much during the last 50 years of her life. She was a member of the Church of England, but she was confined to her home and unable to attend church services. During her illness, a well-known preacher, Cesar Milan of Switzerland, came to visit her. He asked her if she had peace with God. She was facing many inner struggles because of feeling useless. She resented the question. She refused to talk about it that day. But a few days later wrote Dr. Milan and apologized. She said she wanted to clear up her life and clean up her life before becoming a Christian. Milan answered, come just as you are. She gave her life to Christ that day. Some years later, at age 45, Charlotte remembered those five words and began to write the seven verses of Just As I Am in 1834. In spite of being raised in a Christian home, she reflected on her conflicts and doubts and wasn't sure of her relationship with Christ. So she penned her words of assurance about Jesus loving her just as she was. William Bradbury composed music for her lyrics and published the song in 1849 it's a hymn that probably many of us have actually heard in this room many of us have sung it's one of my favorites i have an arrangement that i love i hope we can do it here sometime but it's a song that's been translated into into languages all over the world billy graham claims to have come to faith in jesus christ in response to this song literally tens of thousands of people have experienced jesus christ and have had their lives changed because of this song this woman who had grown up in the church, who knew all the right things, but who saw herself as worthless and useless, who felt that she was unworthy to go before God. Her life was changed, and the lives of tens of thousands of people were changed because she was willing to take the step of coming boldly before the God of grace, to boldly approach the throne just as she was. I want to read these words of this hymn over you, just to give you a picture of what it was that she experienced. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. And pray for us. Jesus Christ, thank you that from the very beginning of history. You've given us a means, a system by which we can approach you, that we can know your will, that we can be in relationship with you despite our failings. That's amazing. You didn't have to do that as a holy God, and we are so grateful that you have. God, we also confess to you that we oftentimes don't get this. We make this about so many things. Instead of simply focusing on Messiah, focusing on what you accomplished through Jesus. God, during this season of Lent, would you turn our hearts once again toward you? Would you remind us once again of all that you've done, of who you see us to be, and how we can live in that truth? We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.